Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, I will be speaking with Garrett Graff about his new book, Watergate, A New History. Garrett is a distinguished magazine journalist, international best-selling historian, and regular TV commentator. He has spent nearly two decades covering politics, technology, and national security, and is recognized today as one of the nation's most prolific and wide-ranging journalists and historians. Garrett, welcome to That Said. Thanks so much, Michael. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. So you've written this wonderful book, Watergate, A New History. And before we dive into it, if you would tell us about your upbringing, your background, how did you get to be the journalist, uh, excellent journalist that you are? <laughs> so um, I actually, I grew up in a family of journalists. Um, my father was the Associated Press Bureau chief uh, here in Vermont, which is where I grew up and which is where I now live again. Um, and actually his stepfather, uh, who I'm named after, was a journalist as well. Um, and uh, he started off uh, covering cops in Pittsburgh in the 1930s, went on to be the drama critic for the New York Herald Tribune in the 1940s and 50s. Um, and so I grew up just it, with this sort of background of journalism. My mother actually is a magazine editor and writer as well. And uh, journalism was more or less the only thing that I ever really wanted to do uh, professionally. Um, and I ended up in Washington um, and uh, was a journalist there, um, was a blogger and then an editor and then the editor of Washingtonian magazine and then became editor of Politico magazine um, and uh, uh, then moved back to Vermont, um, man, seven, eight years ago or so at this point and then uh, have been writing here ever since. Um, and, um, uh, I mostly cover, uh, what I generally call is the intersection of technology and national security. Um, and over the years that's meant covering a lot of federal law enforcement, um, a lot of, uh, U.S. intelligence, um, geopolitics, cybersecurity, things like that. Um, and in, in a way that you, you know, because this was where sort of you and I first met, um, I covered the, uh, Russia's attack on the 2016 election, um, and which led into the Mueller investigation and, um, the, the first impeachment, um, and, uh, ended up covering all of that in, in part because, um, one of my first books, more than a dozen years ago at this point, was a biography of Robert Mueller um, and a portrait and narrative of his tenure leading the FBI after 9-11 that came out in uh, 2009-2010 um, that looked at the way that the FBI had been transformed in the age of terrorism. Um, and so, so that book... Uh, the Threat Matrix uh, Inside Robert Mueller's FBI um, uh, really launched my interest uh, in book-length uh, studies of American intelligence, law enforcement, and politics. In fact, you had a New York Times bestselling book called The Only Plane in the Sky, yeah? Yes, um, and um, I've actually spent, uh, before Watergate, had spent sort of the previous five years um, covering... 9/11 uh, and the legacy of the war on terror, um, including the, the book that you you mentioned there, um, the only plane in the sky, which was an oral history uh, of about 500 uh, um, f Americans as they experienced that day, uh, morning to night, coast to coast, told in their own words. Let Let me ask you this: um, Why did you write this book? Watergate, a new history. It seems like there's been so much written about Watergate. So, as I said, I spent the last couple of years covering um, the Russia attack, um, 
the uh, 2016 election, the uh, Mueller investigation, the first impeachment, and really got myself interested in this question of how did our country, how did our democracy handle the last time that our country, that we sort of confronted a corrupt and criminal president in office. And so I um, wanted to go back and look at Watergate. Um, and along the way, came to understand really that there, there was not a good recent start to finish soup to nuts narrative history of Watergate. Um, and so I, uh, uh, that's what really sort of launched me on, on this project. The last time someone had written a uh, start to finish narrative of Watergate was actually in the 1990s. Um, and I wanted to, uh, as I got deeper into my own research, realized how much of the story of Watergate has changed since then. Um, how much of our understanding of uh, who mattered, what mattered, what the motives were in this big Watergate story uh, actually are different than the way that they have been handed down through history, um, and, and particularly through popular culture, like uh, movies like All the President's Men. And so I wanted to try to put this whole story in context again uh, and, and tell the full story of Watergate start to finish. Uh, and the story is a much bigger, wilder, zanier, weirder, and actually darker tale than I think Americans are traditionally used to hearing. So let's talk about some of the things that we've learned since the last comprehensive book. And there really hasn't been many comprehensive books. There's been a lot of memoirs, but not so much as this 700 plus book that you've written is. So one of the first things that is new now that doesn't exist in the earlier literature is we know who Deep Throat is. Uh, that is FBI person named Mark Felt. So tell us about Felt and what did you learn about his motives for cooperating with Woodward and and Bernstein? And I don't know if he cooperated with other reporters as well, but who is he and what was driving his behavior? Yeah, so when you look at the um, what has changed in our understanding of Watergate in the last 20 years, there are really three big things that stand out. Um, one is uh, the extent to which we now understand much more clearly the full arc of Watergate. The, the Watergate story that I tell is actually the burglary of June 17th, 1972 at the Watergate offices is just a tiny slice of that story. Um, in fact, the, the Watergate scandal really is less an event and more a state of mind. It, it encompasses a dozen interrelated but distinct scandals that uh, span the entire Nixon presidency from 1968 right through 1974. Um, and so the book really tries to put all of those in context, show how they lead from one to another, um, and link uh, up uh, the stories that beginning with an event, which I'm sure we'll talk more about in a little bit, called the Chenault Affair, that in many ways actually begets all of the later scandals that come with Watergate, and that up until about the last decade, we really didn't know at all. Um, the second category of things that have changed in the last 20 years is our understanding of the primary sources behind many of these documents. You know, there have been more than 3,000 pages of Nixon tape transcripts that have been released uh, in three different volumes of, of book, uh, uh, book-length transcripts. Uh, there's all sorts of declassified uh, and new re newly released investigative files uh, from the FBI and the Watergate Special Prosecution Force. But, uh, and this, this is where I actually circle around to answer your underlying question, 
the the third category that really is perhaps the biggest change of everything that we understand about Watergate is how radically now knowing the identity of Deep Throat changes the entire arc of what we understood to be happening inside the Nixon presidency in the midst of Watergate. And what I mean by that is we have this picture of Deep Throat told uh, in Woodward and Bernstein's book, uh, All the President's Men, and then the Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman movie uh, of the same name that came out after that, that sees uh, Deep Throat as this figure in the movie played by Hal Holbrook, who is you know, the shadowy person in the parking garage who we imagine, you know, because we don't know who Deep Throat is, is this good government, pro-democracy, you know, truth, justice in the American way fighter, uh, a, a, you know, a, a reacting to the horrors and the abuses of power of, of Richard Nixon and doing his part to save democracy. It turns out that's not who Deep Throat is at all. And in fact, Deep Throat is this FBI bureaucrat, Mark Felt, the deputy director, who doesn't really care about Richard Nixon at all, but is extremely pissed because he was passed over for the job of FBI director in May 1972 when J. Edgar Hoover died. Uh, six weeks before the Watergate burglary, and is doing everything that he can to sink Hoover's successor, Patrick Gray, who Nixon appoints as the acting director of the FBI, and who becomes one of the central managers, really, of the Watergate investigation. Uh, so Mark Felt is out there not trying to save democracy, but to do some pretty brutal knife fighting of, uh, you know, sort of bureaucratic office succession politics. Um, and it, it really changes our understanding of, of Deep Throat um, and his motives. Mark Felt actually is engaged in some of his own uh, abuses of power during this same time window, uh, abuses of civil liberties of Americans that he actually, uh, along with, ironically, Pat Gray uh, and, and a third FBI official, the three of them are actually indicted uh, and charged with abusing American civil liberties uh, late in the 1970s, years later. Uh, go on trial um, and are eventually pardoned by uh, by Ronald Reagan as president. And that this really is not some Nixon insider. This is someone uh, who is playing an entirely different game and is uh, actually at, at key moments, as we now understand it again, you know, with hindsight, actually has damaging information about Richard Nixon that he doesn't bother to tell anyone at various points because he's not out there to harm Richard Nixon. He's out there to harm Pat Gray. So what does he care if he knows embarrassing and incriminating uh, and indictable information about Richard Nixon's behavior? And so he, uh, so a big part of what this book tries to do is and what I try to do in my research and work is to uh, recenter Mark Felt and Deep Throat in this story and explain Mark Felt's actual motives and what he's actually trying to do and accomplish and in a way that we've never actually understood when anyone has looked at the Watergate story in the last 50 years. Um, and it's uh, really, <laughs> I was really surprised at sort of the twists and turns of the Mark Felt story in the midst of all of this, not the least of which is this um, incredibly funny uh, little historical tidbit nugget bar trivia 
that Mark Felt doesn't actually start out leaking to Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein at the Washington Post at all. He actually starts out leaking to the Washington Daily News, uh, the crosstown rival paper, uh, but the Daily News shuts down in the summer of 70, uh, 72, just a couple of weeks after the burglary. And only in August of 72 does he actually end up leaking uh, to Bob Woodward. Um, and so there's sort of this great, you know, uh, historical twist in this uh, 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 of if the, if the Crosstown paper hadn't shut down, would uh, would history have ever recorded the names Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein in the first place? Yeah. Or whether the editorial producers at that paper would have invested in following this story as Ben Bradley and Catherine Graham. Exactly. Did. It's interesting because you wrote in respect of this that the hidden story of this that was unfolding was this pitched battle for control of the Bureau and the legacy of Hoover. And this is exactly that, right? Exactly. Um, and that this is, uh, you know, Mark Felt is J. Edgar Hoover's uh, closest sort of last standing ally atop the Bureau um, and has spent years climbing to this position expecting that he was going to be Hoover's heir apparent. Uh, and then when Hoover dies at the start of May 1972, uh, uh, the Mark Felt and the rest of the Bureau are shaken and appalled to realize that Richard Nixon is actually going to appoint an outsider, this uh, Navy captain uh, and sort of former Nixon appointee, uh, Nixon loyalist Pat Gray, uh, an outsider as the director of the FBI. And uh, Mark felt um, basically uh, makes it his personal vendetta to sink this gray guy and get him out of, uh, get him out of uh, the Bureau. Mm. The thing that I found most sad to read in your book was a footnote that said that Deep Throat never said follow the money, that which is, you know, sort of like legend in the Woodward and Bernstein vernacular, famous in the movie, but he never said follow the money. Huh? It, yeah. And, and what's sort of more funny about this, and this is, you know, part of what I've thought made this book so fascinating to research and, and I hope interesting to read is how much our memory of Watergate diverges from what actually happens during Watergate. Um, and one of the ways that I think that really comes through is it turns out that like, n not just the follow the money quote is wrong, but in fact, none of the most famous quotes of Watergate are actually represented accurately in the story of Watergate. You know, Deep Throat never once tells Woodward and Bernstein follow the money, which is the most famous line of, the movie and one that you hear reporters cite, you know, even today, uh, all the time in investigations. Uh, it, it was entirely an invention uh, and summary by a screenwriter, um, a scriptwriter for the movie. Um, you know, Nixon's line, I am not a crook. Um, it, it, you know, it w is actually not a line that has anything really to do with Watergate itself, but it is part of these dozen other scandals that unfold during Nixon's presidency, but is actually said in the context of uh, answering presidential tax fraud questions uh, it, very late in his presidency, where he is uh, confronting questions that he has been sort of playing fast and loose with some presidential reimbursements uh, and, and some home improvement projects by, by taxpayers. Uh, and he comes out in a line to um, a, a speech he's giving to newspaper editors and says, you know, the American people deserve to know whether their president is a crook. Well, I am not a crook. Um, the, the third example I always use is, you know, one of the other iconic lines to come out of Watergate 
is Senator Howard Baker's What Did the President Know and When Did He Know It? Um, which has been handed down to us through history as, you know, the ultimate indictment. But actually was originally offered in the context of a presidential defense, which is Howard Baker was actually out there defending the president. And he was saying, you know, we can't hold the president accountable for this because it's clear that the president didn't know anything about the burglary um, and didn't know about it until after the fact. And the question is, when did what did the president know and when did he know it? And Baker's answer was uh, nothing and not enough. And then sort of the, my sort of last example in, in this is, uh, you know, the, the lesson that you have heard probably, you know, in your own professional life, you know, Michael, the, the stories that, you know, we hear crisis communications people hand down for 50 years is that the lesson of Watergate is always that the cover up is worse than the crime. Um, and what you actually realize looking back at the totality of Watergate is that in many ways, actually, the crimes were worse than the cover-up. That actually Nixon's, uh, Nixon's crimes against the American people were manifold. Um, you know, some of the worst abuses of power that we have ever seen. Um, and, uh, that in fact, they, they were many and myriad and awful in a way that we don't generally, uh, fully appreciate today. Yeah. And we'll talk about some of them, but I want to talk about a couple of more things that are new, and then we'll go circle back and go through the Watergate history as you chronicle it. Another thing that was new to your book that doesn't exist in most of the other books is that you had access to full access to the Nixon tapes and the intelligence agency documents. Those things were under wraps for a long time. So tell us what was most interesting to you in them as you began and completed your research. Well, one of the things that really stands out um, that we have really come to only understand in these last 10 years as these transcripts and intelligence files have come out is the centrality of the Chenault affair. Um, and, and this is where my book starts. Um, in many ways, it is the original sin, I think, that begets all others in the Nixon administration. And you see in the fall of 1968, this is when Richard Nixon, former vice president, is running for the... Uh, the presidency against sitting Vice President Hubert Humphrey. Nixon and his campaign manager, John Mitchell, team up with this Washington uh, doyen and, and socialite named Anna Chenault, uh, who's well-connected in Asia. And she, and, and they have her intervene on Nixon's behalf with the South Vietnamese government to interfere with the Paris peace talks. Um, and, and effectively, Richard Nixon tells her to have the South Vietnamese keep the war in Vietnam going for Nixon's electoral benefit, political benefit. Um, it's a stunning story. It's one of the closest allegations uh, uh, you know, credible allegations of outright treason we have ever seen against a senior U.S. American political figure. The idea that Richard Nixon uh, was encouraging the continuation of the Vietnam War uh, and the stalling of the Paris peace talks to keep the American servicemen dying in the jungles of Vietnam for his own political gain. Um, I mean, it's just it, it appalling. And what we now understand because of declassified documents out of the Johnson Presidential Library is that Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, in the closing days of the 1968 election, comes to understand this treachery and uh, confronts Richard Nixon. Nixon denies the whole thing and the clock runs out and that basically Nixon is elected president. And at that point, Lyndon Johnson decides to bury the whole thing. Um, that he, uh, he classifies the whole thing. It doesn't come out for f almost 50 years. And it becomes something that uh, is sort of rumored, but never really fully understood. 
So Nixon knows through his presidency that Johnson knows. And in sort of Edgar Allan Poe, telltale heart style, he is driven crazy by uh, the idea that this treachery of his might come out while he is president and goes to sort of ever greater and deeper and wilder lengths to come up with uh, to, to ensure that this stays buried, um, including in the wake of the Pentagon Papers, the leaks in the spring of 71 uh, that in that uh, are so damaging about the way that Lyndon Johnson and John F. Kennedy had handled the Vietnam War. Nixon is afraid that his own role in the Chenault affair is going to come out as part of these Pentagon Papers. And so on the Nixon tapes, on his own White House tapes, he is actually caught giving the only order for a burglary that he is caught on White House tapes given. Um, most Americans think he ordered the Watergate burglary, but it actually turns out he probably didn't, probably had no knowledge of it uh, in advance, and is certainly not on the tapes um, uh, ordering it. But in the summer of 1971, he does order the burglary of the Brookings Institution, the think tank in D.C. He gives the order repeatedly um, over several days um, to break in and steal a set of documents related to the Chenault affair that he is convinced is inside. The White House comes up with this crazy plan that has... uh, the the burglar the sort of Cuban burglars who go on to become the burglars the following summer at the Watergate as well um, that they are going to be dressed up as DC firefighters uh, that the Nixon White House is going to firebomb the Brookings Institution and then in the chaos of the fire they're going to send in these undercover Cuban burglar firefighters dressed as firefighters. Into the into the burning Brookings building to break into the safe and steal it, uh, steal back these documents. The White House ends up nixing the plan, uh, not because this is one of the craziest, most criminal things that any president has ever contemplated actually doing in American history, but because the uh, White House decides it is too cheap to purchase the fire truck necessary to carry out the firebombing plot. Unbelievable. It's really unbelievable. But also in the talking of the burglarizing of the Brookings Institution, you see Nixon's anti-Semitism in the full flavor, too, right? Exactly. And you see, I mean, this is part of what sort of comes out in all of these tapes is, you know, the just what a hateful person Richard Nixon was. Um, you know, his rank racism, his rank anti-Semitism. Um, and it, and it all is part of this really amazing, uh, you know, yin and yang, dark and light personality of, um, Richard Nixon, where you see Richard Nixon accomplish incredible things as president. I mean, he is... Um, by almost any measure, one of the two or three, uh, you know, most accomplished, most consequential presidents of the 20th century. Um, he is in many ways the hinge upon which the entire 20th century turns. The, the person who sort of ushers out the era of FDR, uh, New Deal, LBJ, Great Society, ushers us towards instead what we now recognize as the Reagan Revolution, um, the, the sort of turn towards uh, a, a much more racist um, and uh, um, uh, nativist, nationalist politics that really finds its natural conclusion in the era of Donald Trump uh, in the modern Republican Party. Um, and, and yet along the way, he accomplishes you know, incredible things as president, but can sort of never get out of this criminal paranoid mindset that he has and that he sort of brings forward into every conversation. You write that the Nixon White House as being in a permanent state of crisis, everything was urgent, important, and leading to a siege mentality. When I was reading about this view of the collective state of mind 
of the White House. First, of course, you see parallels perhaps in the Trump White House, but it explains in some measure how these things happen. Because you think to yourself, how could a president think about bombing the Brookings Institute? How could they think about burglarizing the Watergate and the DNC and George McGovern? And you explain it very well in this siege mentality. So talk a little bit about the state of mind. And John Dean talks about it a bit as well. Sam Dash, I think, finally says, after speaking to Dean, I now get it. I understand the collective mindset of this White House. Yeah, part of this has has to do with remembering just how tumultuous that era of America really was. Um, you know, this was an era of uh, you know protests against the Vietnam War were at a peak. Um, there were uh, you know real domestic terror movements of that era. Um, you know, armed. Uh, black nationalist groups uh, um, uh, uh, across the country, um, the Black Panthers, the Weather Underground. Um, you know, there were uh, bombings across the country at a scale that would, uh, you know, baffle us today. Uh, and Nixon comes in uh, as Mr. Law and Order. Um, you know, crime rising across the country. I mean, this was back in, you know, some of the darkest days of sort of the depths of depravity in New York City. Um, you know, New York City was, you know, heading towards, you know, its looming bankruptcy that we now sort of famously remember. Uh, and that this was a moment when the the soul of the country really seemed under siege, as you said. Um, and uh, and Nixon really felt that. Um, you know, there were days where the White House would be ringed uh, um, by municipal buses, um, you know, trying to hold back uh, protesters. I mean, I mean, you know, buses sort of parked nose to tail all the way around the White House complex. There were days where uh, the White House mess and the White House basement was given over to uh, soldiers, uh, you know, there is a quick react reaction force in the event that protesters uh, breached the barricades outside. Uh, um, and uh, this was, uh, th there was one day where this, one of those uh, prepositioned soldiers, you know, accidentally set off a tear gas grenade inside the White House and, you know, sent the Nixon family, you know, running in literal tears from the building. Um, and that this was really a uh, a moment where, those issues of law and order, uh, of, of crime and disorder uh, permeated the national consciousness and national politics in a way that Richard Nixon himself uh, really felt that he was the last bulwark uh, for, you know, the American state and American democracy uh, hold, trying to hold the tide against these onrushing Mongol hordes. Mm. What was the, is it pronounced Huston or Houston plan? The Huston affair, yeah. Tell me, tell us about that. Because, you see, the thing that strikes me is I hear you on all this, and this was a period in my life where I was living in Washington during all of these events. And you look back in time and you think the manner in which Nixon responded to though seems so irresponsible constitutionally. And that's what's always troubled me. How is it that a guy who was president of the United States moved the way he did as opposed to more normal reactive uh, modes that presidents often take? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that, uh, you know, scholars really wrestle with, um, where you see, again, sort of this dark and light of Richard Nixon. Um, you know, it, he... Part of what makes his 
criminality and corruption and abuses of power so puzzling is the extent to which he really sees himself as a man of integrity and honor, um, you know, someone who tells the truth. Um, you know, there, there's an anecdote I tell in the story of how uh, he so considers himself a man of honor that in the 1960 campaign, when he ran for president against uh, John F. Kennedy, he had promised in that campaign to campaign in all 50 states uh, and so believed in that as a promise that he spent the final days and weeks of the campaign in 1960 campaigning in you know what were at that point literally the least important states in the country um you know to sort of round out his 50 state pledge and so he was away from all of the states where his presence would have actually made a difference but he really felt it necessary to fulfill this promise even though in that instance in 1960 it probably actually cost him the election that had he stayed and fought in the states where his presence would have actually made a difference, he probably would have actually won that election in 1960. Um, but by the time he ends up in the White House, he is, uh, you know, he considers this tide of disorder and crime, the leakers in events like the um, the Pentagon Papers, you know, the, the, there's sort of this campaign against him, campaign against democracy, that, you know, enemies hiding in all corners of, this, uh, of the country. And so he goes through um, this effort led by an aide named Tom Charles Huston, who, uh, to, to basically come up with a extra-legal, unconstitutional structure for law enforcement and intelligence agencies like the FBI and the CIA and the Army and the Navy and the military um, that would sort of give them permission to ignore all of the limits on warrants and surveillance and wiretapping that they had been long hamstrung by, you know, it tear down the... Uh, dividing lines between domestic intelligence and foreign intelligence, uh, you know, abuse the civil liberties of, of um, ordinary American citizens. Um, and sort of through this effort, um, you know, early in his presidency, in many ways sort of lays the groundwork for the White House plumbers unit that he creates in the spring of 1971 that it becomes the sort of dirty tricks department of the White House with G. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt uh, that ends up uh, leading the way into the Watergate burglary in the summer of 1972. So let's turn to that. You write that the Watergate is a, a story of two separate conspiracies. The burglary, which you describe as a deliberate, sloppy, shambolic, but nonetheless deliberate plan to subvert the 1972 election and the cover-up, which you say was reactive and almost instinctive. And it happened in part because there was nobody there to say no, no adult in the room. So June 17th is the 50th anniversary of that break-in. So tell us a little bit about that break-in. And one of the questions that has always interested me is, why? What was his motives? What was he looking for? And maybe before we get to Watergate, you could talk about the failed effort in May and then the plans to, I guess, break into McGovern's headquarters, the Democratic candidate. So talk us through what was going on in this period and and why. Yeah. Um, so as you broke down quoting me, uh, you know, there was sort of two parts of the story, what happens before and what happens after. Um, and, it, you know, again, the Watergate burglary itself uh, it was, was this triggering event that, you know, 
Americans, in large part, think that that's where the story begins. But really, it was the equivalent of walking in on the second or third act of a play. Um, Nixon had had this dirty tricks unit uh, up and running, the plumbers, uh, for roughly a year at that point. Um, They had uh, already conducted a number of operations. They had had very experienced extensive plans for some really wild operations in the course of the, uh, the, the campaign in 1972, all of which are really geared around this idea that, um, you know, Nixon thinks that his enemies are out there doing dirty tricks to him. And so he's got to get it get it, get to them first and give them as good as he gets. Um, whereas in fact, he's, he's actually the only one out there doing the dirty tricks in the first place. Um, and, and there is a sort of interesting, uh, analog to the way that we saw, you know, Donald Trump approach his presidency and sort of the idea of Trump coming in, sort of assuming that everyone else is as corrupt as he is when in fact he is the, most corrupt person in the room in all of these conversations. Um, And one of the things that we see is that uh, G. Gordon Liddy and and E. Howard Hunt, um, Gordon Liddy, this uh, rambunctious conservative uh, former FBI agent with an overeager sort of Walter Mitty uh, spy complex imagination to him teams up with Howard Hunt, the, a, a former CIA officer uh, with an equally overeager imagination who has spent his entire CIA career writing pot boiler thrillers under pen names. Uh, he's, he pens more than forty of them during his career with the bureau uh, with the with the agency. Um, and he, the, these two guys sort of come up with these grand schemes for what they're going to do to the Democratic candidate and the Democratic nominees over the course of 1972, including, you know, follow the Democratic presidential nominee around with their own spy plane, uh, that they are going to set up a, uh, houseboat at the Democratic Convention in Miami that's wired for sound and video and hire a team of call girls to lure Democratic officials back to this wired houseboat for blackmail and salacious uh, stories. Um, And then do all of these, you know, what are called sort of black bag jobs, uh, you know, these illegal break-ins at places like uh, McGovern's headquarters and, and uh, the Democratic offices at the Watergate. Um, and part of that, what which is sort of so weird to understand, is that this was actually the, the burglary where they get caught is the second burglary uh, at the Watergate. Um, and, and actually, they, the burglars had gone in a couple of weeks earlier and had actually... Uh, um, the burglary hadn't worked. Their wiretapping efforts had failed. And so they were going in this second time to try to fix the burglary's problems from the first time. Uh, and that later that weekend, their plan was actually to burglarize McGovern's headquarters as well. Um, and so sort of if they hadn't gotten caught at the Democratic uh, Party headquarters that day, um, seems quite likely they would have gotten caught sort of a, in one of their other schemes uh, later on that summer. But uh, to your then question about sort of the second conspiracy, what, is, what becomes clear on the morning of June 17th after the arrests is really that there are so many crimes, there are so many schemes underway inside the Nixon White House, inside the Nixon orbit, that they can't come clean about any of them, that, they, that no one is uh, willing to try to force a conversation about, uh, um, you know, who did what, who knew what, when, 
um, because they become worried that like they don't know what all of the other schemes are that all of the other people in the Nixon White House are involved in. And that basically they, they just don't trust each other inside the White House enough to do real damage control. And so they shuffle, uh, as I say, symbolically toward this cover-up uh, and conspiracy in the wake of the the burglary on June 17th, not because anyone sort of sits down and says, like, we got to cover this up, but because sort of everyone is acting in their own self-interest to hide their own crimes and unsure sort of who else is involved in what other crimes might be going on, that they basically just end up uh, all lurching into a cover-up mode uh, out of self-preservation. What's interesting is you've had the opportunity to review all of the various memoirs and you catalog that thinking of why the Watergate was burglarized. You said there are three theories, financial improprieties and the, at the upcoming Democratic Convention in Miami, looking for an equivalent to the IT&T affair, sexual blackmail and illegal foreign campaign contributions. So, You've defined three underlying possible motivations. So can you walk us through each of them in a little bit more detail than the broad view that you just gave us? Yeah. So one of the things that stands out as particularly wacky in the midst of all of the Watergate story is, you know, here we are 50 years later. We still don't know who ordered the burglary and what the burglars were actually doing. Um. There are a number of different theories about who ultimately gave the order for the burglary to happen in the first place. Um, they, uh, what we do know is that basically Jeb Magruder, the deputy campaign director, gives G. Gordon Liddy the order to do the burglary, but we don't know who told Magruder to do the burglary. Um, and one of the theories is that Magruder actually tells Liddy to do it himself, uh, that, that there's, there was actually no sort of higher figure involved. Um, from there, though, uh, you get into this really complex and sort of wacky series of stories about how, um, uh, how the burglars understood their own work and sort of what they were actually doing. Um, that there appear to be really two or three distinct motives, most likely, inside the burglary team themselves. And that there was sort of a level of deception uh, and differing motives and secret keeping even within the five-member burglary team. Um, um, the, the Cuban emigre burglars who are caught... Uh, they think that they're sort of looking for information about the uh, any funding that the Democrats took from Fidel Castro, um, which appears to be a total red herring. Um, there's some evidence that the Democrat that the burglars uh, were actually looking for information about illegal campaign contributions that Nixon took from the Greek military junta, the, the Greek government uh, illegal foreign campaign contributions, um, with sort of trying to figure out what Nixon's team was, uh, basically with Nixon's team trying to figure out what the Democrats knew about these illegal contributions. Um, there's some question uh, whether, uh, and this is John Dean's theory um, uh, of uh, whether the burglars were looking to understand what dirty tricks the Democrats were up to and financial improprieties the Democrats might have been up to at their Miami convention. Um, but then there are sort of much wilder and weirder theories as well, um, including um, a, 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 a set of theories that were put out by a, a book in the early 1990s uh, that led to sort of a decade of defamation and uh, counter-defamation and uh, various lawsuits um, back and forth among Watergate players 
about uh, whether uh, there was a ring of call girls somehow associated with the Democratic Party uh, that summer, uh, potentially CIA-sponsored call girls. Um, and, uh, and part of what becomes very weird in all of this is there actually is pretty good evidence that the CIA uh, was pretty involved in uh, knowledge of the burglary leading up to it. That, it, it, that, that at least one of the burglars, one of the Cuban burglars, Eugenio Martinez, uh, was actually on the payroll of the CIA as a $100 a month asset at the time and was evidently reporting um, what Liddy and Hunt were up to um, through this whole effort. Um, and uh, the, there's sort of some evidence that the CIA might have actually even acted to sabotage the burglary in the first place. Hmm. One of the things that really struck me as interesting is as the cover-up, if you will, is unfolding and as the investigations begin, the extent to which the White House went into this damage control mode um, uh, as you said, some to protect their own interests, some to protect the broader interests of the presidency. But Nixon did something which was interesting, and we see analogs to it in Trump and his call with uh, the Ukrainian president, that perfect phone call, is Nixon requests the CIA to intervene with the FBI. Actually, it becomes, I think, one of the articles of impeachment. But can you talk about this? Because we hear so much about they can't do this or that because quote unquote, it's national security, which is, you know, some sort of blanket, blanket effort to um, prevent disclosure. It's an anti-transparency sort of motto. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, one of the things that really stands out in this story um, is, uh, you know, Donald Trump's name appears just once in the text of this book. Um, but he, he really looms over every page of this story. Um, and you see these incredible uh, analogs and uh, foreshadowing of the, the Trump presidency and sort of the way that the country dealt with this, you know, the, the shadow of future fights with special prosecutors, um, the shadow of future fights with the, the president and, and Congress. Um, and... Uh, th this moment that you mention uh, really becomes the part that sinks Richard Nixon in the end, which is he intervenes to try to get the CIA to shut down the FBI investigation of, uh, uh, of uh, the Watergate burglary by trying to have the CIA tell the FBI um, this, you know, this is a national security matter. You should just stay out of it, um, which the FBI would have, you know, presumably happily done and dropped the story. And, you know, we, we, we never would have really understood the, the full threads of the, um, the Watergate burglary. Um, and the CIA refuses and the CIA, uh, deputy director Vernon Walters actually goes out of his way to write some pretty detailed, memos to file about the orders that he gets and the conversations that he has. Um, and as you say, the CIA is uh, far better at losing paper uh, than they are at preserving paper. Um, and so they, uh, the fact that they held on to these, uh, you know, that Vernon Walters took the time to write down uh, what was going on and, um, and actually um, save those papers really underscores how much the CIA wanted to make clear that it was not a party to a Watergate cover-up and, in fact, resisted efforts to make itself a party to the White House cover-up. Um, the, the story of Richard Nixon and his CIA director, um, Richard Helms, is, is still one of the, uh, you know, tensest, fraudest uh, 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 
most shadowy stories that we have out of the Nixon administration. And there's actually a new book that's coming out this spring that I haven't read yet that I'm very excited to read by Jefferson Morley called Scorpion's Dance um, that is going to dive deeper into this question of Richard Nixon and his CIA director, Richard Helms. Um, and, and I'm really curious to sort of see what, what turns up there. But it was a fraught relationship because the CIA was trying to sort of protect itself from allegations of, of wrongdoing. So it wasn't that they found some noble reason not to do this, but it was self-protective and that Nixon and Helms were sort of fighting over who was going to be left standing when the music stopped. Exactly. And that um, there's all sorts of sort of wild waves of sort of cover up and conspiracy and uh, very delicate and fraught dances, shall we say, between uh, the CIA and Richard Nixon, because Nixon tries very hard to corrupt the CIA in the midst of all of this uh, and the CIA uh, resists, um, and, and really sort of stops, uh, um, stops short of being willing to participate in the worst, uh, impulses of the Nixon era. It's interesting. So interesting to see all of these, it's, you know, it's a murder on the Orient Express. There are yeah. so many knives that are out and who's bidding these people are doing is so less than clear still all these years later. Exactly. There are, things, there are two things I wanted to ask you about, which I was wondering if you had a, a theory about it. The first was, what did we learn about Rosemary Woods, if anything? And do we know anything new about Rose? So Rosemary Woods was Nixon's secretary. She famously deleted 18 and a half minutes of a taped conversation between Nixon and Haldeman. She said it was an accident, but doesn't seem probable. Is there anything these many years later that you've come to conclude about that? Has anyone learned anything further? Uh, so you, you uh, yes and no is, is sort of the short answer. Um, you know, Ro Rosemary Woods, as, as you mentioned here, um, you know, is the most likely candidate for the person who erases the 18 and a half minutes of uh, this key conversation that takes place uh, just hours after the Watergate burglary. Um, and, you know, we have no idea what was said during that, that conversation between H.R. Um, Halderman, Nixon's chief of staff, and, and Richard Nixon. Um, we know it dealt with Watergate. We don't know exactly how it dealt with Watergate. Um, and, uh, and at the end of the day, no one was able to, the Watergate Special Prosecution Force looked very closely at trying to charge Rosemary Woods with that uh, obstruction um, at, for erasing that tapes, couldn't make that charge at the end of the day. And there was a, uh, I think, sense on their part that there wasn't a lot uh, to be gained in the hunt for justice by uh, by punishing Rosemary Woods, who is this incredibly powerful um, Nixon secretary um, or, or person who is sort of shorthanded by history as Nixon's secretary, but was really, you know, Nixon's institutional memory keeper uh, for his entire career. You know, she was known as the fifth Nixon. Um, and, you know, she was close enough with Pat Nixon that the two of them actually shared clothes. Um, and in the White House, Rosemary Woods was so powerful that she had her own team of secretaries uh, and wasn't just a secretary herself. Um, and that the Watergate Special Prosecution Force uh, just ultimately decided that Nixon had sort of hung out his most loyal aide to dry in the midst of all of this um, and that they couldn't prove that she was absolutely the person who uh, erased the tape. The other thing that you write about that, I mean, the whole book is interesting, but another thing that you write about, which was interesting, was about Nixon and why he didn't 
destroy the tapes. And so tell us a little bit about it, because he had a tape. Nixon had the LBJ taping system. Remember, LBJ famously taped, and you can listen to them on the LBJ library website, but LBJ had them. Nixon removed them and had them reinstalled. So tell us a little bit about that, why they weren't destroyed, and what he feared in respect of history and himself and Henry Kissinger. Yeah, so uh, you're, you're exactly right with that summary, which is uh, LBJ and John F. Uh, um, John F. Kennedy both had taping systems inside the White House. Nixon recoils at the idea of having a taping system, and so he um, very quickly has the taping system ripped out as president. But then, uh, irony of all ironies, uh, Nixon thinks his presidency is actually going very well, um, and he thinks he is uh, becoming a real history-shaping figure. And he is worried that he's not going to get credit in history for all of his brilliance. That, in, in fact, uh, Henry Kissinger, uh, he, his, his sort of top foreign policy aide, um, basically is out there in public taking credit for Richard Nixon's successes and leaving Richard Nixon holding the bag on Nixon's failures. Um, and so he, in order to make an end run against the duplicity of Henry Kissinger uh, and establish Richard Nixon's rightful place in history, Nixon installs this secret voice-activated recording system um, that covers not just the Oval Office, but his hideaway office in the old executive office building, um, as well as other... Um, parts of the residence and um, Camp David and, and elsewhere. And one of the things that uh, is just so uh, incredible about this is when you realize that Richard Nixon thought that his tapes would save him, not sink him. Uh, and ultimately, at the end of the day, he thinks that the tapes will never be found out. Um, and is sort of shocked and horrified when it becomes clear that uh, his aide, Alex Butterfield, has announced the existence of this taping system in the first place. And then he is um, really, really uh, convinced effectively that no court would ever force the release of these tapes. Um, you know, that that's the, you know, there's sort of a, a longer story and a longer arc to it. But just at the end of the day, he can't fathom that his tapes would ever see the light of day. In fact, the litigation creates this executive privilege doctrine, which doesn't sort of previously exist. And they do find circumstances, the court does, when these types of communications can be released. And that's what the whole litigation in Trump and Mark Meadows and all that is about. It's all about this executive privilege that court creation out of the litigation over the release of the Watergate tapes. Exactly. Um, and, and this is where, you know, you see the legacy of this series of events so clearly, which is um, Watergate in many ways creates modern Washington, that this is, uh, where we see the modern uh, surveillance, intelligence, oversight regimes come into place. This is where we see the modern Congress come into play. This is where we see really the advent and the creation of the executive branch oversight hearings by Congress that become so, uh, so familiar to us these days. Um, and, and then... Th as you mentioned, I mean, even this very idea uh, of executive privilege is, is codified for the first time under Richard Nixon um, and it you know, becomes the basis of the fights that w the, Donald Trump is having with, um, uh, with um, the, the January 6th committee right now. The last question I, that I want to ask you about is something you wrote, which was that 
you say, in addition to all the ways in which Watergate changed the government, you say that Watergate changed the way Americans think about their government. So can you flesh that out for us? Yeah, um, th- this is in many ways, I think, one of the longest lasting and, and biggest impacts of Watergate, which is the way that Vietnam, the Pentagon Papers and Watergate, um, which, you know, if you read the book, you will come to understand sort of how closely related those three things really are and how sort of one leads to the other leads to the other. Um leads to this apocal collapse of trust in American institutions um, that we're still really, really wrestling with today. Um, and, you know, part of what is really hard to understand and recreate when you go back and look at uh, the story of Watergate is how many people just could not fathom that the president of the United States would ever lie to the American people. And, and just what a bracing realization that was um, as they um, uh, as they sort of accepted at first Richard Nixon's denials that he had nothing to do with the Watergate burglary um, and you know it was unconnected to his campaign um, because everyone was like oh okay if, if Nixon says he didn't do it, then he didn't do it. You know, we, you know, the president of the United States would never lie to the American people and sort of the Washington goes on about its life. Um, and, and it's only with, you know, months and years of follow-up revelations that America really finds its faith in its most key institutions so deeply shaken, um, by the revelations that grow out of Watergate, not just about the presidency by the end, but about the CIA, the FBI, through the Church and Pike committees, um, and how you know we sort of learn to not trust our government again going forward. It's the legacy of Watergate, really, the change it had, it forced on America. And I guess you can argue good or bad that realizing that government officials lie may be a good thing but it really did shake the foundation of America. Absolutely. Garrett, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. The book is Watergate, A New History, a terrific read. Michael, thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I really uh, appreciate your perspective on these issues. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.